All right, so let's keep track of where we are. We are in week six already. Um, we're going to finish up the skeletal system today. So we're going to make a minor change with a small tweak to the, uh, to the syllabus because uh, the skeletal system spilled over partially because we didn't have the skulls. Uh, so we're going to finish up the skeletal system and gross anatomy today. We're going to do the joints lecture, which is 60 slides, but it'll go quicker than you think. Um, and if there's any time at the, at the end, if you want to stick around and look at the models a little more, you want me to quiz you a bit, you want to ask questions, then take your time to do so because this is the last time we'll see the skeletal models in class before your practical test. Okay? Uh, so remember that you have your online resources, you have pictures and books, you have the visible body, you have anything else that's available to you to, to look at the models, but these are the exact models that you will see on the tables in front of you on, uh, on week 10 for the practical components of the of exam, of test three. Um, that means we're going to push muscular system. We're not going to cover any of that today. That'll be in next week, and it will spill over into week nine after reading week. We'll just compress the nervous system a little bit, so everything will be fine. Understand? Make sense? Questions? Okay. Cool. So uh, when we left off, we were we just finished up the uh, the upper extremity. Uh, so again, I, I did bring upper extremity models in today. Uh, you can review them uh, later if you like. But for now, let's start by moving down into the pelvis. Before you go and grab uh, models, just be aware that. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, go for it. Grab a spine if it. So we, we did talk uh, some about the, uh, the spine last week, and if you look at you know, the spine, it kind of comes and sits down on top of the sacrum, and the sacrum is basically wedged in between the two halves of the pelvis. So we'll consider the sacrum, of course, as part of this whole uh, pelvic, pelvic ring. So technically, if you're looking at, if you're going to take the spine off, you're looking at the pelvis, there really are four bones involved. Okay? You have the sacrum in blue here, which we saw already. What's this green one called? Coccyx, good. 
endotoxics. And then you have the two other big ones, right? The left and right oscoxae. So the oscoxae are essentially the collective, uh, the pelvic, well, the pelvic bone uh, that makes up each of the semi-pelvis, so the right and left halves of the pelvis. And as we're going to see, um, the, we're going to subdivide each one of those oscoxae into three component parts, the ilium, the ischium, and the pubis. Okay, so this is a really critical part uh, for mechanically for the body. It's kind of a really central location. It's the, it's the base of support for all of the trunk and upper body, and it's how we distribute our weights into the, into the lower limbs, which is important for ambulation, motion. Of course, there's also some really important viscera, organ stuff that goes on in here. Uh, it's kind of this, the, the location for the end of uh, the reproductive tract, or sorry, the reproductive tract, the end of the digestive tract, uh, it's important for the urinary system because the bladder sits in there. That's, of course, even more important for females because there's a bunch more reproductive stuff in there. So it's a really, really, really important part of the body. Um, there are lots of variations on exactly how this is going to be positioned. The typical average kind of position is not that it's straight up and down, but that it's got a bit of an anterior tilt. It's tilted forward a little bit. There's lots of variation on that, though. Okay, so let's look at the oscoxae. Okay, so it starts off as three bones, uh, the ilium, the ischium, and the pubis. So let's take, uh, I'm gonna jump ahead here. These colored uh, pictures might help a little bit. Okay, so you'll see in blue in that diagram we have the ilium. So my hand right here is grabbing the ilium. It's the big kind of wide wing-like upper part of that oscoxae bone. Okay. The ischium is in red on that picture. Okay. So we're in this orientation right here. So the ischium is going to be the more inferior part. Okay. Um, there's one, there's a couple particular landmarks on each one of these, which we're going to learn. Uh, but if you're, you're sitting in your chair, right, and you kind of wiggle your butt around a little bit, you're going to feel two main bony points that you're sitting on. That's these guys right here. They're called your ischial tuberosities. Remember, a tuberosity is a big bony product. <coughs> okay? And then the anterior part, which is in kind of yellowish on that diagram, is the pubis. Okay? Pubis. And you can, you can feel uh, that on yourself a little bit if you kind of press into the lower part of your abdomen, press in and down a little bit. The first hard part you feel, right, around belt line, you're going to hit the top of your pubis, pubic bone. All right. So again, let's break that, uh, or let, let's look at where they join. So um, early on in life, they do exist more or less as three separate pieces. They will fully fuse together in bony fusion by somewhere in adolescence, usually around between age 13 to 15, but there's some variation on that. Um, <clears throat> once they fuse, effectively the oscoxae, so each one, the left and the right, is one solid bone. Okay. So ilium, ischium, and pubis are completely fused together. It's effectively one bone for the remainder of your life. Um, there are basically three articulations. So what's an articulation? Uh, what do they mean? In a joint. Okay, so it's three articulations. The first is in the front. Okay, this is called the pubic symphysis. All right, you can see on your, on your model this thing right here. It is, does anybody remember what, what uh, that's made up of? We kind of referred to it a couple of times. We will again later today. It's made of a particular kind of tough cartilage. Not hyaline, more what we find in the disc. Fibrocartilage. Good, so that's fibrocartilage. 
So that is a slightly movable uh, uh, articulation. Uh, it can, of course, become a lot more movable, especially in a pregnant female, as they have particular hormonal influences and things start to relax to allow the pelvis to separate a little bit to prepare for a childbirth. Okay? We have our other two articulations in the back, okay? uh, at your sacroiliac joints, usually just called your SI joints. Probably may have heard of that term before. Okay? So sacroiliac, okay? S for the sacrum, I for the ilium, Basically, at each spot right here where they meet, where the blue meets the white, that's a sacroiliac joint. Now, those are joints, right? But they are, it, I mean, it's a, it's a movable joint, but it's not a freely movable joint in the sense that a lot of our other synovial joints, we'll learn that term later today, are movable. There's a slight amount of motion there. Okay, we're going to see these, uh, uh, a couple little details on each of them. So again, the ilium, the most kind of superior part, is the biggest part. Um, the couple landmarks that are important there would be the crest, right? That's up here, not on your test. Remember that the master list, for the, we'll go back to the master list in a little bit. Uh, it's going to tell you everything that you'll be required to know for your test. Iliac crest is not on this, okay? Um, and... The uh, other part is going to be the uh, ASIS, or anterior superior iliac spine. That's a mouthful at first, but what that's referring to is this, these little pointy parts right here. Okay? And these are what most people actually call their hip bones. If they if you feel kind of in the front of your pelvis, the little bony parts in the front right there, those are your ASISs, if that gives you a reference point. That's these guys right here. Okay? Important site for, for muscle attachment. Uh, again, the ischium, the most inferior parts, the biggest landmark that I want you to know is your ischial tuberosity. I have to check, double check if that's on the list or not. I can't recall. Uh, but again, those are what people sometimes call your sits bones. Those are the, the, the bony parts that you kind of can feel when you wiggle your butt around in your chair. Again, um, very, very important uh, um, muscular attachment sites. Does anybody happen to know what attaches at those spots? Uh, so it's, it's the muscles that are going to move the femur. They're muscles in the back of the thigh. Not your glutes. Big long ones that go down the back of your thigh. Hamstrings. That's where the hamstrings originate. Okay. And again, the pubis. Um, we're not going to differentiate in class between the rami, the different little parts of the pubis. Just know that the pubis is the most anterior part of the pelvis here. All right. So that's a good view here from the side. Again, <coughs> originally ilium, ischium, pubis. The whole thing once it's fused is the os coxae. And the landmarks that we saw are the anterior superior iliac spine, or ASIS, and the ischial tuberosities down here. Now, the other kind of uh, important thing that these, that these bones create is out here, that's the acetabulum. That you do need to know. Okay? The acetabulum is the socket part of the ball and socket hip joint. Okay? So I don't um, actually if you look closely at this image, this colored image again up top, and those three bones uh, originally uh, um, uh, develop as individual bones and then fuse. They actually fuse right in the middle of the acetabulum. That's where the three of them join together. Okay, so you have contribution from all three bones ending up in that, uh, in that acetabulum. So um, 
the, the, tr the true name, excuse me, for the hip joint. If, it's funny, when you ask people where their hips are, right, where, you know, point to your hips, you're going to get answers all over the place. Right? I do this every single day in my office. Point to your hips, because they're super important. I get here, I get here, uh, I get here, I get here. The reality is your hip joint is here. Mm -hmm. okay? So if you bring your, your leg up, the crease deep inside there, that is your true hip joint. So the anatomical name for the hip joint is the femoroacetabular joint. And all, all the joints they seem like a mouthful, but they're naming just the bones that articulate, right? The femur, okay? the femur, and the acetabulum. So the true hip joint is the femoroacetabular joint. Ball and socket joint, very, very important, okay? We have two major ball and socket joints in the body, right? We have the femoroacetabular joint, and what's the other one? What's it really called? What's the ana anatomical term? So I'll give you a hint. Out on the scapula here, the little, uh, the little articulation part is called the glenoid fossa. So it's the gleno, it's this bone. Humerus, the glenohumeral joint. All right. Now, uh, developmentally I and mean, evolutionarily speaking, we used to be quadrupeds, right? We used to be four-legged creatures. We evolved to, to be bipedal, so to be upright. And as that happened, we had some morphological changes occur in, in joints. We learned to have much more, although the, both hips and shoulders are, are, are ball and socket joints, there are distinct differences. We essentially have sacrificed some stability in the shoulders in order to gain maximum mobility. Okay, so you'll find that that shoulder is very, very shallow ball and socket joint, which is also why it's the most commonly dislocated joint in the body. Uh, if you compare that to the hip, again, ball and socket joint, but a lot deeper. Okay, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, genetic variation in the hip joints. Um, there are all sorts of things that can happen. The, uh, the, the acetabulum can point forward or backward or up or down, or the femur can have uh, kind of if this is the, uh, we'll get to the femur in a minute, if this is the ball and this is the shaft of the femur, you can get changes in the angle like this or like this or all sorts of variations on the size of the ball, the size of the socket, so a huge amount of variation there. Um, but it's largely much, much, much more stable and deep compared to the, uh, and, and therefore slightly less mobile as far as uh, ball and socket joints go compared to the shoulder joint. Does that make sense? All right, what's next? So this whole thing together, right, the os coxae combined with the sacrum together are going to create the pelvis. Now, you can divide the pelvis into the true pelvis and the false pelvis. So I think the colored image will do this best justice. The purple on that picture is the true pelvis, okay? So basically, this here is the pelvic brim made by the, the uh, uh, sacrum and this rim here. So everything where my fist is now, right, that is the true pelvis, okay? Everything above that line but up inside the wings that the, uh, that the uh, ilia make, up in here, that's considered the false pelvis. Make sense? Okay. Very good. Um, we can differentiate between the pelvic inlet and the pelvic outlet. 
Um, same kind of idea. This pelvic brim here makes the pelvic inlet, and the pelvic outlet is on the interior side, right here. Um, eventually, in anatomy two, you'll learn more of the surface anatomy of the pelvic outlet. That's called the perineum. That's where you find things like, um, like the anus and like uh, the reproductive organs in both male and female. Um, this is a good point. A good place to point out some differences, and hopefully, it should be fairly straightforwardly understandable why there should be differences between males and females. Right? Males don't have to bear children. Um, so females' pelvises tend to be wider, okay? uh, and you also you can if you pick up any pelvis, you can pretty much uh, almost every single time easily tell if it's a male or female pelvis, even with just the bones. Okay, the easiest way to tell the difference is if you look at what's called the infrapubic angle. That's this right here. Okay, or this right here. I can tell you that this is, is, is a male. Okay? You can judge based on the approximate width, too. But if you look at the infra infrapubic angle, if it's less than 90 degrees, it's probably a male pelvis. And if it's greater than 90 degrees, it's more likely to be a female pelvis. Right? Okay. Any questions? Okay, so we have spine sits on the sacrum, which is part of the pelvis. Pelvis connects to the lower limbs through the femoroacetabular joints. So let's work our way down into the lower limbs. Uh, if you like, you can go grab some, I don't know how many femurs we have, uh, but may as well go grab those lower limbs. They're over there just to the left of the knees. Kind of spread those out as much as you can. Otherwise, that, uh, that body there is up for grabs. If somebody want to take that and maybe bring it to one of your your group so you can share it. Um, you don't need it, so you can keep it if you like for now, but you don't need it. Uh, when, when, uh, I'll show you. We'll, we'll go through the, uh, the bone, the terms list when we're done. You know, know exactly what you need. So there's an extra, there's one extra foot I see up there. Somebody's going to need that for sure. If you want it. So <laughs> I made mention a minute ago about some evolutionary adaptations and stuff, and how the shoulder is very analogous to the hip, although they're they're of course structurally different now because of how we have evolved. Um, you're going to see that there are a lot of uh, morphological, so, uh, so um, shape similarities uh, in the upper and the lower limb. You'll see that there's a girdle, right? So in the upper limb we have the scapula, in the lower limb we have the pelvis, which connects to one bone, one bone, which connects to two bones, which connects to a bunch of small bones, which connects to a bunch of long bones. Okay, again, we began as quadrupeds uh, and we have evolved to, to specialize some of these structures. So the stuff in the lower limb now, because it's primarily our weight-bearing bones, has kind of thickened and widened and become more suitable for weight-bearing versus our upper limb stuff, 
is you know better suited to be a little bit more agile and flexible, and we have you know thinned out a little bit in those in those bones. So we're working our way down the lower limb. We have a femur, which sits on top of the tibia. Okay, so. So femur, longest, biggest, thickest, strongest, heaviest bone in the body is going to end in two kind of round knobs called condyles, which sit on a pretty flat top, which is called the plateau of the tibia. You usually call that the shin bone, okay, the large bone of your lower leg. Okay? In the shin, you also have another smaller bone called the fibula. I'm going to go over all these again in a bit which sits on top of this, the, uh, well, when the tibia and fibula come together, they sit down on a bone of the ankle joints called the talus. And the talus is part of the group of tarsal bones, okay? Small difference here. We have seven tarsal bones. How many uh, carpal bones do we have? Eight. 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 And there's seven plus that little pisiform, so it makes eight. Okay, so small difference there. And then the, uh, we have in the midfoot, the long bones that are, uh, that are distal to the tarsals. Those are the metatarsals. Okay, they're named very similarly to what we have in the hand. Or in the, in the wrist, we have the carpal bones. In the, in the ankle, we have the tarsal bones. In the middle of the hand, the long bones, we have the metacarpals. The long bones in the midfoot are called the metatarsals. And then phalanges are phalanges, okay, in both the upper and the lower limbs. And very similar to the upper limbs, right, we have, right, we have five sets of phalanges, okay, in digits, and they're, they're numbered in the lower limb from great toe, big toe, that's one, out laterally, so one, two, three, four, five. Similar to the uh, upper limb, uh, the thumb, number one, only has two phalanges, okay. Same thing in the, in the great toe. The rest of the toes, the rest of the, uh, uh, yeah, the rest of the toes, excuse me, have three phalanges, proximal, middle, and a distal one of each. And so again, like with the hand, if I point at one of these, you're gonna have to tell me a number, a position, and a name. As in, this is, for example, the first metatarsal. Okay? This is the second proximal phalanx. This is the fourth middle phalanx. This is the fifth distal phalanx. You see the naming convention? Right? Number, position, bone. We'll get to all that in, in just a bit. <coughs> okay, so again, femur, biggest, longest, thickest, strongest bone of the body. Uh, it starts off with the, uh, the its, its round head, which creates the ball of the ball and socket joint. Um, if you look at the femur, um, it's got the head and then the neck, let me see a picture here. Okay. So the head is here. The neck is the part that angles from the head to the shaft. The shaft is the big, long part. Okay. There are a couple of bony, or at least, well, one specific bony uh, landmark that I want you to know. That is the greater trochanter. Okay. The trochanter is a bony projection, usually for insertion of muscles that attach to it. Okay? You're not responsible for the lesser trochanter, but you are responsible for the greater trochanter. So the greater trochanter is right here. Okay? I'll show you a picture in a second. 
Greater Trochanter is right here. Stand up for a second. Okay. So put your hands on your, your uh, pelvis up in here around about one. Okay, that's the ilium. You work your way down the outsides. You're gonna, if, you, if you put a little bit of pressure in and run your fingers down, the next bony hard part that you run into that's kind of projecting outward, those are your greater trochanters. And you can tell if you shift your weight around a little bit, it'll feel like it's kind of moving into your hands. Right? So what that is, is this right here. Okay? And it's an important site for muscle attachment. <coughs> All right, come on down. Very good. The lesser trochanter is also a site for muscle attachment, but we're not going to get into that in this class. Next is, um, as we're working our way down to the knee, maybe I'll just use the knee model here. Okay. <laughs> Femur sits on top of the flat tibia, so the big, thickest bone of, of your lower limb. We'll get to that. Anterior to that, we have this bone. People call it the kneecap. We're going to, since we're in anatomy class, call it the patella. Okay? So patella is interesting. It is something called a sesamoid bone. Does anybody know what a sesamoid bone is? Okay. A sesamoid bone means that it is embedded inside the middle of a tendon. Okay? So what we have in the front of your leg, front of your thigh, are your big quadricep muscles. Okay? Quadricep means four heads. There are four quad muscles. We'll get to that in another lecture. Quad muscles come down inferiorly, and their insertion point okay, is through this big, thick tendon that actually attaches down on the tibia. Okay? The, little, the little bumpy parts on the front. Uh, so if you, if you have your kneecap here, your cella, you go down the little bumpy part in the front of your shin, that is what's called the tibial tuberosity. Okay? So that is right here, right, is this part of the tibia. So the quadricep muscles actually attach directly down onto the tibia, onto that point. Before they meet that point, they have this patella, okay? It's a sesamoid bone, which means it's embedded in that thick quadriceps tendon, okay? And its purpose essentially is to create an easier lever at the knee, so it allows us to create more force at the knee uh, by giving it a pivot point. So it does. It, it's um, we'll talk about having. Um, it, it's the the patella where it meets the other uh, our other bones. It, it touches the femur behind it. Is it's an articulation, but it's not really a joint per se. It's not a joint like other joints where it has its own capsule and stuff surrounding it. It's basically uh, compressed against the front of the femur. Okay, so the back side of it. Uh, is going to be uh, articular surface, so it's going to have that hyaline cartilage on it to allow that easy kind of gliding on it. Um, and quite frankly, it's just that spot where the patella meets the femur, okay? the patellofemoral joint, uh, is a com really, really common spot for knee arthritis. Okay, so all this is sitting on top of, we're going to look at the knee a little, in a little more depth in the joint section, uh, sits on top of the tibia. Okay, so again, uh, femur is pretty round knobs, condyles that sit on top of a relatively flat tibial plateau. And we'll see these, some of these supporting structures in the next units. <coughs> right. um, so the, the biggest 
uh, weight-bearing part of the lower limb is pretty much exclusively the tibia. The fibula just kind of just hangs out there. It really doesn't bear much load at all. The femur is pretty much loading entirely on the tibia. All right, now, <coughs> it is important that you know uh, which one is which. Okay? And I'll tell you right now, a very common uh, mistake. People say tibia and fibia. It's tibia and fibula. Tibia, fibula. Okay? Now, the fibula is lateral. Okay? So the tibia is medial, the fibula is lateral. So, which knee is this? I got a right and I got a left. I need a consensus. So think about your landmarks, right? Where is the anterior? That's where the patella is. That's the front. Okay, so we know which way is the front. So tibia is medial, fibula is lateral. So this is a right knee joint. Exactly. That make sense? Any confusion on that? Anybody want to debate me on that? We're good? Okay, cool. All right. So, again, the, uh, <coughs> the landmarks there would be the tibial tuberosity, the bumpy part that I was pointing out in the front, where the uh, patellar tendon attaches, and <coughs> the medial malleolus. So if you go all the way down to the ankle, okay, right? if you feel your ankle inside and outside, there's going to be bony bumps on both sides. Okay? The bony bump on the inside, the medial side, that is the medial malleolus, and that is part of the tibia. Okay? It looks like this. The bumpy part on the lateral side of the ankle is called the lateral malleolus, and that is part of the fibula. Okay? Um, so, Tibia is really easy to find, right? Your shin, the whole bony part of your shin all the way down, that's all tibia. Inside your ankle, medial malleolus, that's tibia. Fibula is easy enough to find too. As I said, the outside of your ankle, the bony part, the lateral malleolus, is fibula. If you work your way up to the outside of the knee, right about here, okay? There's a bony part, right? Kind of a round, knobby part on the outside. That is the head of the fibula. So it sits down below the tibial plateau. It kind of just hangs out on its own. So non, pretty much non-weight bearing. All right. The tibia and fibula are going to be attached together with something called an interosseous membrane, which we're going to see uh, when we get to the joints section in a little bit. Which takes us down to the ankle, the tarsals. Okay. Do we have some feet kind of spread out throughout the desks? You guys have a foot back there? Everyone's got a foot? Okay, perfect. <coughs> so, like I said, pretty analogous, similar-ish developmentally to the, uh, to the um, carpals, to the wrists. We have, except instead of uh, eight carpals, we have seven tarsals. Of course, it's going to look a little different because there's a lot of weight bearing to be done here. All right, so you're going to see some that are a lot uh, bigger and thicker. So I'll give you the names of the bones first. Okay, we have the talus, the calcaneus, the navicular bone, 
That's gonna, you know, we organize the, the, the carpels into two rows of four, okay? Uh, this one we're gonna organize into more or less two rows of, uh, uh, the first one is three bones, and the second one is four. If you look at your foot, your foot model, um, the second row will be the one that's obvious, okay? So this is a superior view of the right foot, so I'm gonna zoom in, okay? The second row is obvious, it looks like a row. The first row, quote unquote, are these three bones right here. Talus, calcaneus, navicular. So let's talk about those, okay? The talus is, is the, essentially the bone on which the, uh, the tibia sits. So the talus sits like this, it's got kind of a dome-shaped top, the tibia sits on top of it, and it has this kind of hinge movement, okay? The talus is interesting, it's actually the only bone in the body onto which there are zero muscular attachments. Right? No muscles attached to it. Do you remember which bone uh, is the only bone in the body that doesn't have an articulation? Doesn't have a joint? The thingy up in here, yeah. The, the hyoid bone, good, good. Okay, so you're gonna bear weight uh, tibia on the talus. The talus is going to sit on top of the calcaneus. That's your heel bone. All right, let's get a lateral view here. Or not. Nope, sorry. My bad. Okay, let's take this guy. Okay, so tibia sits on top of the talus. Talus sits on top of this big calcaneal bone. Right? If you do that, your heel, you're putting pressure on this part of the calcaneus. All right. If somebody has plantar fasciitis, foot pain, uh, it's it's very often right at the part of the calcaneus on the bottom because that's where the plantar fascia starts and goes this way. Discussion for another day. So let's go back to that organization of the rows of the of the uh, of the ankle bones. Okay. So it's a tibia sits on top of the talus. Talus sits on top of the calcaneus. If you look anterior to your talus, okay, you're gonna find a one bone. That is your navicular bone. Okay? Now, if you take those three as a group, what that leaves you with is that second row of four. Okay? So one, two, three. Those are our, our one group. And then that leaves you with a row of four. All right. So um, there's a bunch of a few ways you can remember this. Okay. Um, the, if we start at the medial side, okay, we start at the medial aspect of the of the foot in the second row of the tarsus. You follow me? Okay. We have three bones that all have similar names. One, two, three. Okay, start here, medial, one, two, three. Those are all called cuneiforms, okay? And they're named medial cuneiform, intermediate cuneiform, lateral cuneiform, okay? Medial cuneiform, intermediate cuneiform, lateral cuneiform. And then if you go one bone farther, the last bone lateral to that that we haven't talked about yet that's in that row, is the cuboid. Kind of looks like a cube, although 
that if it's not, then I'll be fair and not test you. Okay? Uh, that's an omission by me. So, we had a little saying to remember the, the order of the bones in the, in the carpals. Um, again, there are a bunch you can use for, uh, for the tarsals. One of the ones that comes up most often is, I don't particularly like it, but it's what it is. Okay? Uh, it's uh, no thanks cow. So, talking in the first row. So, navicular, talus, calcaneus, and then milk with the C. M-I-L-C. So, medial, intermediate, lateral, caniforms, cuboid. Okay? So, no, navicular, fax, talus, cow, calcaneus, milk. Medial, intermediate, lateral, caniform, cuboid. All right? So I'll come around. We'll, t we'll, we'll workshop this stuff together. All right? Before we get to that, we have our tarsal bones, so we of course have our metatarsals. Again, named from medial, numbered from medial to lateral, right? Starting with the great toe, the big toe. We have our first metatarsal, second metatarsal, third, fourth, and fifth metatarsal. Distal to that, they are each gonna have phalanges, singular phalanx. Remember, the great toe only has two, so proximal, and distal phalanx. Each other one has proximal, middle. middle, good, not medial, middle, and distal phalanx. So again, number, position, bone. Number, oh, position, oh, bone. Right left. Number, position, bone. Okay. I could ask you right and left. I could ask you right and left. Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, so, what, uh, well, we'll, we'll come around and workshop this, but again, first, Proximal phalanx. First, distal phalanx. Second, proximal phalanx. Second, middle phalanx. Second, distal phalanx. Third, proximal. Third, middle. Third, distal, etc., etc., etc. Okay? <coughs> there is one more little thing that I want you to see. And I'm not certain whether they're on here or not. Yes, they, on some of the models, they're going to be. If you look at the bottom of the foot, bottom of the foot, okay? At the, follow, follow the anatomical lingo, right? Look at the distal end of the first metatarsal. What you might see, and if it's the real bones, or the real, you might not, but on the models, what you're gonna see are two little bumps. Okay? I'll come around and see if they're actually on your models or not. Okay? These two little bumps are bones that are embedded within tendons on underneath the big toe. What is the term for a bone that's embedded in a tendon, like the patella? A sesamoid bone. A sesamoid bone. Okay? So we have, I'll fix it a little bit. So we have sesamoid bones, two of them, that are on the, uh, basically on the underside of what is effectively the first metatarsophalangeal joint, that big joint of the big toe. Uh, a similar reasoning for the patella. Here, again, it creates some leverage when you bend your knee to create force. Same thing happens here. You put a ton of your weight through that first toe joint as you walk. And so you have these little two bones underneath to help deeper. Okay, that was a lot all at once, but that is the end of the, uh, of the bones. So let's take some time.
I'll come around, I'll quiz you, you can ask questions, uh, and then we'll go on to joints, and then, oh, I'm sorry, skull, we'll do skull, we'll do skull, we'll do skull, we'll do skull. We'll do this, we'll take a break, we'll do skull. We're going to make this as, uh, as straightforward as we can. So there's a few really deep bones inside, a lot of internal anatomy that we're going to just gloss over or skip entirely. Uh, we're focusing on the superficial external anatomy for the most part with a couple other things. Remember that this is all going to correspond with that anatomy terms list. Okay? So when we talk about the skull, uh, we have the cranium that's going to enclose the brain. Uh, and then we're going to have um, some other bones that make up the lower parts uh, that make the face. Okay, now there are some things, again, some real intricacies in, say, the eye sockets uh, that, that get kind of complex, and we're going to make it as, as, like I said, straightforward as we possibly can. So let's go to an anterior view, okay? So this is our anterior view of the skull here on slide 11. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff on this image that you are going to need to find. So I'm going to hop back and forth between this and the, uh, the slides that have the, the names on them, okay? And you got to, when you're, this is why I want you guys to have this in hand because you need to be able to get used to a couple different views because you could get to a station on your test and it could be sitting on the desk like that or it could be sitting you know, sideways or upside down. There's a few bones that I want you to know from a few different views. So make sure that you get a good look at us. Okay, so the best way to do this would be to start in the front. Okay, super simple. Dead center in the forehead, kind of orangish on this picture. We have the frontal bone. Okay, you have one frontal bone. All right. There are a couple others, or a bunch of others that are paired in the skull, but this one there is just one, okay? If you, if I'm going to jump ahead, if you look at the top of your skull, the superior view, you can see the same frontal bone with the same color right here in that orangish, reddish, brownish, whatever the hell color that is, okay? So one frontal bone, it comes almost kind of halfway back the, uh, on the head. All right, now we're going to talk about how it joins the, the next bones in a second. Okay, back to the front. Okay, um, let's see, well, let's make this easy. We'll take this one off the board now. Uh, the jawbone, okay, kind of independent one. One, it's called the mandible. Okay, yep, the mandible. The mandible is going to articulate with the skull on the left and the right sides. Uh, it articulates with something called the temporal bone which means that the spots where it joins are called the temporomandibular joints, or TMJ. Okay. Um, so if you put your fingers okay, you in front of your, you kind of just in front of your ears and move just a little bit anteriorly, open and close, you're going to feel bulging kind of a little bit into your fingers. That is pretty much where your TMJ is. Okay. From the anterior, okay, the front of the, uh, the so basically the, the cheekbones in the front in orange here, okay, we have the maxilla. There are two maxilla, left and right. So we have here like so and here like so. Make sure you're finding this on your skull as we're going through. All right. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll workshop this. 
Next, in purple, okay? In purple, you have two nasal bones. These are on your skull. If they're numbered, it might be number three, like mine is. Little, two little bones right at the bridge of your nose. So you can feel this up here, right? Right in the bridge of your nose. Those are bones, left and right nasal bones. If you pinch it, it feels like bone. It doesn't bend, all right? If you work your way a little bit distal, you'll hit a spot where the nasal bone articulates with some cartilage, and now you can wiggle it all around, right? That's not bone, but the more proximal part is the nasal bone, okay? The other part you can see from this view is, uh, is some of what's in green here, and that makes some of the bridge of your cheekbone, okay? That's called the zygomatic bone. We're going to see the zygomatic bone in uh, the lateral view as well, and it's going to make an important structure along the side of the face called the zygomatic arch. Okay? That is it. Anything that I didn't list off is not testable. All right, don't worry, making this simple. Okay, now we're gonna go to the top of the head here, okay? We're gonna top of the skull. Superior view, uh, we're gonna see the four major bones of the cranium that envelops the, the skull, okay? The four bones are our single frontal bone, our single occipital bone, which also makes a good chunk of the base of the skull, and the two parietal bones. Now, as we'll see, and we're going to talk about this again in our next, uh, our next unit for joints, uh, those bones are attached by junctures called sutures, okay? So the sutures are easy enough to remember. They're named, at least the two major ones, are named for the direction in which they go. So let's take a look at the superior view here, okay? We have our frontal bone, okay? If you follow it posteriorly, it's going to run across and meet with the next two bones in blue on your diagram. These are the parietal bones, the big bones that make the side and the, and the um, posterior superior part of the back of your skull. Okay? So if you look on your skull model, you're going to see a little wiggly line, right? A little zigzag line that separates the frontal bone from those left and right parietal bones. That is a suture. It's called the coronal suture. Why is it called the coronal suture? Because it is in the coronal plane, right? Remember the coronal plane, same as the frontal plane. Make sense? All right. Now, parietal bones are mirror images of each other, right? Left and right. They are separated down the middle with another suture called the sagittal suture because it's in the sagittal plane, okay? They're not straight lines as you see. They kind of zigzag a little bit back and forth. We're gonna talk about those in the, in the joint unit. All right. Now, if we look at the skull from the back, you're gonna see that those same two parietal bones, left and right, okay? And they're gonna articulate with this bone shown in purple here, the occipital bone. Now, if you look at the occipital bone in your skull, okay, you can see it from the posterior, all right? If you start tilting your, your head anteriorly, you can see that the occipital bone actually continues and makes up a good chunk of the base of the skull, including these two little round, smooth condyles, which as we're gonna see, are the articulation with the top of the cervical spine. Okay? That is where the skull meets up with the atlas, or C1. Okay? So this is all occipital bone. If you're looking from the posterior, 
you see that there is a suture that connects the two parietal bones to the occipital bone. Anybody have a background in Greek? So fine. Greek letter lambda. It looks like this. Okay, that's why this is called the lambdoid suture. Okay, so right here, the lambdoid suture that is on your anatomy list. Okay, just like so. Okay, the lambdoid suture. So we have three sutures, right? What's this one? The one between the frontal bone and the parietal bones is called the what? coronal. It's in the coronal plane. The coronal suture. Okay? The one that's down the middle between the two parietal bones. And the sagittal plane is the sagittal suture. And the one at the back separating parietal bones from the occipital bone that looks like the letter lambda. Look it up. Google it. It is called the lambdoid suture. Good. Okay. There's a couple little, uh, little uh, other little uh, things here. Uh, the external occipital protuberance. Um, in some people, that's quite big. In some people, it's quite small. What it is, is it's a bumpy part of the back of your skull. Okay. Some people, it's a tiny little bump on the occipital bone. On your models, that's this point right here. It's very really quite small. Okay. On someone like me, it feels like a ski jump. Why don't I shave my head? <laughs> All right. So totally uh, uh, a lot of variation on, on that one, okay? Um, something else you might see in this diagram is little green things, okay? Those are called sutural bones. Uh, we'll briefly touch on that in the joints lecture, but sutural bones are basically uh, anomalies. Not everyone has them. Some people do. They're shown pretty big in that diagram. Sometimes they're tiny, tiny, tiny. Sometimes they don't exist at all. They basically are tiny little bones that are trapped in between the junctions of, uh, of a suture. Okay, they don't really have names other than they are sutural bones because they're totally variable from person to person. All right. Let's look at the skull from the lateral side, right? The lateral view. We're going to see some important stuff here. We're going to see the temporal bone, zygomatic bone, part of the maxilla. And here. Okay. So um, let's look first at the same bones we already saw, Okay. So in uh, the red there, you still see your frontal bone from the lateral aspect. This big blue one on the picture there, big parietal bone still. Okay, that's kind of your best view of the parietal bone. You can still see some of the occipital bone in the back, in purple. And you get a pretty good view of your zygomatic bone. Okay, so that is this guy right here in green. Remember, that's what makes up uh, the cheekbone. It's at least the, the anterior parts of the cheeks right here, this bony part there. Right? That is zygomatic bone. Now, um, what we're going to do is you can follow along your uh, what's called your zygomatic arch. So if you feel your cheekbones here, okay, that's the green one, zygomatic bone. And if you kind of do, do this kind of almost pincer grip, you can kind of feel a little bit and feel kind of how you work your way backwards. So what you're going to feel is this zygomatic arch right here, okay? And you can look at uh, that on your skull, this bony arch that runs backwards, posteriorly. Now what you'll see is that that is actually two bones that make up that arch. It's the zygomatic bone in the front, which is why it's called the zygomatic arch, but the back part of that arch is actually made up of that yellow bone, which is called the temporal bone, okay? 
This is your temple. This is your temporal bone. So you can see that, again, the, uh, you can see that great in the lateral view. That's the yellow one on that diagram right there. There's a bunch of different parts of it. Um, I'm going to make you responsible for two parts. Okay? So, uh, th sorry, three parts. Okay? So it's uh, not even that part of the, uh, of the zygomatic arch. Just recognize that that's the part of the bone that meets with the zygomatic bone. The two parts that I want you to, to recognize, or sorry, excuse me, I'm sorry. Three parts that I want you to recognize on that yellow temporal bone are first the mastoid process. So the mastoid process is this big kind of broad bump, yes, uh, right here. Okay. On the diagram, it is right here. If you want to feel your own mastoid process, your fingers behind your ears and then just slightly down and you're going to kind of rub onto the, this big broad point. Right. That is your mastoid process. Right. It's an attachment site for an important muscle. You may have heard of it before. Your sternocleidomastoid. You see that muscle that's popping out right there? It attaches right to the mastoid bone. Okay. The other part is something that I don't recommend trying to feel on yourself. Okay. That is the pointy part. Here. That's called the styloid process. You can see that really well. You can see it from the, from the lateral view, but you can also see it quite well if you look at the inferior view. It's the big pointy parts that look like fangs. Okay? That's part of the temporal bone. That is the styloid process. And the last part of the temporal bone that I want you to recognize is the hole. Okay? Right here. Okay? Just superior to that styloid process. That is your external acoustic meatus. A meatus is a hole. Okay, that is your ear hole. Is your ear hole? That makes sense reference-wise now. Yeah. All right. Very good. Uh, in that lateral view, you can, of course, also see part of the maxilla. Um, again, the maxilla is, is, uh, is where the top row of teeth are embedded into, whereas the bottom row of teeth are embedded into the mandible. What else? Okay, we got the zygomatic arch. Uh, here you can cross off lacrimal bone. I will not make you responsible for lacrimal bone on slide 16. We got the zygomatic arch. Did we all see the temporomandibular joints? Jaws on. Okay. The spot where the mandible articulates in, in uh, models, there are some of the models that might be a little uh, really obvious where they're supposed to sit into and show where they're supposed to be. But it's a part of the temporal bone. Okay. So we have our yep. right there temporal mandibular joints. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right there. Don't drop it. Okay. Uh, so, on this slide 18, you can cross off the squamous part of the temporal bone. Leave the external acoustic meatus alone. Leave the mastoid process. Leave the styloid process. Ear hole, big bump, spiky thing. It's not on the anatomy list? Good enough. 
Okay, let's move on. So uh, we're not going to do a whole heck of a lot on the inside of the skull. Okay, but there is uh, there is oh, there's one or two things that I want you to be aware of. On your skulls, you're not going to be able to see it. You can't see it because uh, you can't open it in the sagittal section. But if you look at the skull in certain sections, you're going to see um, some empty spaces, okay, called sinuses. So the big one that you can see in this view is a part of the frontal bone. It is the frontal sinus. This is an empty space, okay. We, there's a few of them in the, in, the, uh, in the skull. As far as we know, they lighten the skull. They give it some resonance for sound. Uh, we don't really know much other than that about what exactly they are for, okay? Some developmental anomaly, okay? They are lined in a mucous membrane, uh, and they usually have one hole that you can get in and out. And when I say you can get in and out, by you I mean bacteria can get in and out. Uh, and sometimes they can get in there, they can do their thing, create byproducts and then plug up that hole and create pressure inside of those sinuses. So if someone describes a sinus headache, right? It's usually in the frontal sinuses. There's two of them right here, okay? Or often in the maxillary sinuses. There's, there's uh, empty spaces in the maxilla as well, okay? So it feels like a deep aching pressure, okay? There is one thing on this view that, uh, and I'll, I'll find a better view for you. Okay, let's look at the inside of the skull from the superior. Okay, uh, there are two things that you need to see from this view. Okay, the first is this big obvious hole. Okay, this is the foramen magnum. If you stick your fingers through that foramen magnum, and then flip it upside down. You see what bone makes up that foramen magnum? Nope. What, so what bone? Yeah, good. The occipital bone. Okay. So the occipital bone at the back is what creates that hole, that space, that foramen magnum. What goes through that foramen magnum? Spinal cords. Good, very important, okay? Spinal cord runs through that foramen magnum and then travels down through the spine, okay? There is one other thing that I need you to know, okay, from this view, and it's right here, okay? This space right there, I'm gonna come on and help you uh, point it out, okay? Start where my finger is, right here, there, That is called the cella tersica. Okay, hold on. Right here. It should come up on another slide. Cella, S-E-L-L-A, tersica, T-U-R-C-I-C-A. I just checked. I believe it is on your anatomy terms list. Um, it won't be super important for you right now, but when we start learning about the nervous system, um, I'm going to talk about kind of the master uh, endocrine gland, right? The master gland that controls a lot of your hormones in your body. Anybody know what that gland's called? 
Pituitary gland. That, Salaturcica, is the space where the pituitary gland sits. And that's why I want you to know where it is. Okay, but that's it for the, uh, for the interior view, just foramen magnum, Salaturcica. Um, you, if you look closely, you're gonna see all sorts of holes. Okay, there are holes for blood vessels, uh, arteries and veins to run in and out. There are holes for what are called cranial nerves, nerves that branch directly off the brain stem that control things like the eyes and the throat and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, we're not going to do the bony anatomy of those in this class. What about um, the old cranium process against the Wilcon style? The what process? Um, old cranium. Olecranon process? Uh, yes. That's part of the uh, ulna. We can. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. The olecranon process is, is this. Uh, so, slide 22 here. You can cross this off entirely. Get rid of slide 22. Slide 23, this, these, you do have to know both of these. Okay, so if you're looking at the inferior view, the bottom side of the skull, okay, the big hole, the same big hole we saw from the top, foramen magnum, where the spinal cord goes through, and then directly lateral on both sides of that foramen magnum. Look at your skull, you have those two smooth round condyles, okay? Those are the occipital condyles. Those are the ones that sit right on top of your atlas, your first cervical vertebra. Does anybody remember the movements that they do? Or if you can uh, you know, imagine, visualize how this sits, what movements those joints are responsible for? Yes, exactly. That's the yes movement. Perfect. Okay. So if, again, if you're looking from the bone, for the bone, excuse me, from the bottom, you have foramen magnum, occipital condyles, and the uh, styloid processes, right? The fang-like little projections. What bone are the styloid processes part of? I know we went through a lot. It's okay. Temporal bone. Good. Okay, so the good part about these diagrams is they're all consistent in how they're colored. Okay, so the temporal bone is always yellow, the occipital bone is always purple, the parietals are always blue, etc. Now you'll start to notice in this view and in this view there's other bones in there. Okay, there are bones that we didn't cover. There's something called the ethmoid bone, uh, there's something called the sphenoid bone. There's a bunch of other uh, little things in there that we are not going to cover in this class. It's just too much. Uh, I want to be focused on the superficial stuff. Okay, so that means this here, 27. This is showing you the kind of a inside view of those bones that we didn't cover. Uh, so do not worry about these guys here. Okay. Uh, same thing here, um, it just, if it helps you for a visual, it helps you understand you know, where the brain sits inside of here. Uh, we'll do a little more uh, um, brain anatomy in the nervous system, uh, but you're not responsible for any of the fossa names there, just to give you a visual. Okay, and then again, sutures, um, these are uh, uh, the things we were referring to earlier. So sutures are, once, once they are, uh, well, earlier on, we'll talk in the next lecture, um, how they start, they start more fibrous uh, so that the, they can actually move a little bit. And then as you get older, 
they will ossify. So sutures in adults are essentially uh, bony connections where there is no motion between those bones at all. They are immovable joints. Okay? <coughs> and then the three that we learned, the, what's this one here? Coronal. And the coronal suture separates which bones? Frontal from the two parietal bones. Good. <coughs> the suture that runs down the middle, sagittal suture, separates which two bones? Parietal. And then the one at the back, lambdoid suture, separates the parietal bones from the occipital bone. Beautiful. Okay, uh, you can cross off squamous suture. <coughs> and then suture of bones, that was the thing we referred to earlier. It showed a few in little green ones. Basically, those are totally random, may or may not be present in each individual person. Um, they're just little bones that uh, randomly form in between uh, where their sutures are formed. Okay, we're not doing the orbit. So we're not doing any of the internal stuff in here. We're not doing the inside of the nasal complex, although we'll talk about that in, uh, or somebody will talk about that in anatomy too. Um, these are the sinuses I was referring to, right? The empty spaces inside some of the bones of the skull. Um, the big common ones, that, especially the ones that can cause problems and uh, sinus headaches with pressure, are the frontal sinuses. So two of them, left and right, in the frontal bone, and one in each maxilla, the maxillary sinuses. Okay? There are some deeper ones in those bones we didn't learn, the ethmoid bones, sphenoidal bones, certainly don't worry about those. That's it. I know it was fast and furious. I get it. It's a lot to learn all at once. I'm going to come around and ask you some questions, then we're going to get into, into, the, uh, into the joints unit. Okay, remember, make sure to review this stuff. Make sure to, uh, to look at your 3D modeling, the visible bodies or, or, or whatever other program you have access to. Look at it from different angles. Those slides here are good. The coloration is good. Um, look at it from different views and, uh, and make sure that you make it correspond with the anatomy list. So, and here's our master list right here. Okay, this is the, all of the possible things you could be asked on your practical bone test. Okay, I'm coming around. Let's uh, let's see what we can do. Who wants to start? Okay, let's get as far through the joint unit as we can. All right, there's gonna be a bunch of crossover between stuff that we saw in the previous unit and this one. So joints, articulations, right? We have one bone meeting another bone in some kind of form of contact. Um, there's a bunch of different kinds of joints which we're going to look at. Um, we'll classify them based on either their structure or their function or both. So let's look at structure. Um, <coughs> in structural divisions, we can have a fibrous joint, which is when bones are held together by this tough, dense connective tissue. We'll see some examples of each of these. A cartilaginous joint, where bones are joined together by cartilage. And a synovial joint, where they are surrounded with this um, this uh, capsule and it contains joint fluid. And when people mo usually think of joints, they're most often thinking about synovial joints. Those are the freely moving joints of, uh, you know, the fingers and the elbow and the shoulder and the knees and the hips and all the major joints that you typically think of. Okay? So we'll get in there. 
Um, joints, of course, the, 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 when you join two bones together, uh, typically it means <coughs> that there, there, with a few exceptions, there may be some motion between those two bones. Okay? Um, so depending on the kind of joint it is and where in the body it is and its function, that's going to give us information about um, whether it's going to move a little or whether it's going to move a lot. Um, and there's a trade-off, right? I kind of referred to this when we talked about ball and socket joints in, in the body. Um, there's two major ball and socket joints. We have the shoulder joint, or glenohumeral joint, and the hip joint, or femoroacetabular joint. And they're both ball and sockets, but one of them, the shoulder joint, has traded, we, we gained a lot of mobility, a lot of freedom of movement, but we sacrifice stability. It tends to dislocate. Uh, and in the hip, we've done the opposites. Okay, we, it's, a, it's a ball and socket, so we've got a good amount of motion, but not as much as the, as the hip, at least for most people, um, because it's a little deeper. So we gain some stability because we want to emulate on them, walk on them, but we sacrifice some mobility in order to do so. Okay? So let's take those categories. Right? We have the fibrous, the cartilaginous, and the synovial joints. So let's look at the fibrous ones first. Um, it means that... There, as the name suggests, you have two bones that are going to be tied together by this dense fibrous connective tissue. Um, they are either completely immobile or only very slightly movable. And you're going to hear some debate maybe on, between some people on whether they're actually movable or not. Um, <laughs> the three major types are going to be gomphoses, sutures, and syndesmoses. We'll, I know there's a lot of words we've learned today, but we're going to go through each of those in turn. Okay? A gomphosis is the, the only example in the body we have are the teeth. Okay? And the teeth are actually joints. Um, they're kind of like a, a peg in a socket kind of a joint. They essentially, you're going to have the, the root of a tooth embedded within a bone. Right? And what are the two bones that teeth are embedded in? The mandible on the bottom and the maxilla on the top. Perfect. Okay? Now, they are joints because they're held in place by ligaments. Remember that a ligament, what's the definition of a ligament? It connects a bone to a bone. Good. So the ligaments that hold the teeth in place are called periodontal ligaments around the teeth. All right? And so there's tiny little ligaments in here that hold the teeth in place. And much, much later, when you get to uh, patho, we'll talk about um, a disorder called periodontitis, which is where somebody has had gingivitis or inflammation of the gums for a long, long time, and they start to wear away and expose the bottom ends of the teeth, and the periodontal ligaments start to break down, and the teeth fall out. Awesome. All right. Uh, <laughs> next, with fibrous joints, are sutures. Okay, so we learned about sutures today. Um, these are a kind of a unique kind of a joint. They are, um, there's debate on whether these things move at all, okay? Um, to be frank, I'm on the side of the fence of they really don't move. They are the joining of two bones in the skull. They are tightly, tightly, tightly bound together with this tough fibrous tissue. And for all intents and purposes, they do not move at all. Okay? In fact, as you get older, they will, all, they will become synostoses, which means they have ossified, which means those fibrous sutures have turned into bone. So as, a, as an adult, it's not even a debate anymore because there's no fibrous junction anymore. It is entirely one solid bone. All right? You'll see the remnant of where they joined, but they do not move. 
The third example of a fibrous joint is what's called a syndesmosis. And this is kind of a strange one, uh, but basically you have two bones that, don't, that have to be held together in a very kind of uh, big region. Uh, and a good example of this uh, would be between the radius and the ulna. So if we remember in the forearm, the radius and the ulna, right? <coughs> two long bones that run parallel with one another, except they have this special motion called, what's this one? Where you turn the palm down. Opposite of that. Pronation and supination. Okay, so they need to they move relative to one another, but they have to be held tightly together, and we do so by a syndesmosis, which basically means rather than having a ligament that holds the bone in place, so a discrete kind of small ligament, you have this big membrane. So it's this big fibrous membrane that runs all the way in between the gap between these two bones and holds them together. So you really can't pull them apart. Okay. So that's a perfect example of a syndesmosis. And because it's joining two bones together, we consider it a joint. <clears throat> Next are cartilaginous joints, which, as the name suggests, means that they have cartilage. And typically, we're going to be either talking about hyaline cartilage or fibrocartilage. And we've talked about both of those a little bit before. These are not joints in the typical sense of the word. When you think of uh, like the next category, uh, synovial joints, there's no space, there's no cavity, there's no space between the two bones. So they're linked together by, something's linked together by cartilage. And these things are going to be relatively immobile or often have a slight amount of motion in between them. So a very good example of a synchondrosis would be the, what are called the costochondral joints. So I think I mentioned this when we were going through rib anatomy, right? The joints of the ribs, the freely movable parts, how the rib cage actually moves when you bend and move and twist and breathe, the joint movement for that <coughs> all happens back here, where the 12 ribs articulate with the 12 thoracic vertebrae. So we have rib joints in here, okay? <coughs> As the ribs come around anterior, Okay, this model shows it great. Um, the bone doesn't attach directly to the bone of the sternum. Okay, it attaches to some hyaline cartilage in the front, which in turn attaches to the sternum. So the junction between the bony part and the cartilaginous part is called a costochondral junction or a costochondral joint. Okay, so it is technically a joint in true sense of the word, but it's not a terribly movable joint. The cartilage here allows us some degree of flexibility. That's why we have it, okay? But it's not a freely movable joint. Make sense? All right. We also have symphyses, okay? Uh, we talked about the symphysis briefly earlier today when we, when we uh, talked about the pelvis. Um, here we have fibrocartilage, so that tough fibrous cartilage that attaches two pieces of bone together, and in this case, we're talking about the two halves of the pelvis. Who remembers, so if this is an os coxae, right, so this half of the pelvis, we have the ilium, we have the bottom part, the ischium, and the front part that, that joins in the middle, the two pubis, two pubises, perfect. And the pubis of each, of each half of the pelvis is gonna be joined by that uh, fibrocartilage pubic symphysis in the front. And as I mentioned, that one is going to have a little bit of movement, 
that is going to change, of course, in a pregnant female, especially towards uh, you know, the later stages of pregnancy, where that does tend to loosen up quite a bit and allows a lot more movement uh, in preparation for labor and delivery. Okay? Another example of that would be uh, in the intervertebral discs of the spine. So, so a, a disc meets a, meets a, a vertebra. Um, that's going to be considered a symphysis as well. Okay? Um, the next category is the biggest one, okay? the synovial joints. And you'll see what that word means in a little bit. Um, but these joints are going to be the freely movable joints in the body, the things that most people think of when they think of joints. That means that you have a bone that meets another bone, and then in that place where they meet, there is going to be a joint cavity. So there's going to be a, a, a space in between them. And that space is going to be filled with fluid. And it's called synovial fluid, hence synovial joint. Okay? So these are a category of joints which are called diarthroses, which means they are very freely movable. They've got lots of range of motion. That is the purpose of these joints. Of course, some are going to have more than others, but we'll see what that uh, looks like in a little bit. Um, there are some, some features that are, uh, that are um, a part of all synovial joints. Okay? So you have a bone that meets another bone. Each one of those bones is going to be capped with articular cartilage. Right? It's cartilage that caps the ends of bones in an articulation. What kind of <coughs> cartilage is that? Hyaline. Good. So hyaline cartilage caps the ends of the bones in a synovial joint. The place where those bones meet, the articulation, is going to be wrapped up in an articular capsule. So this is a fibrous, um, it's basically like you can imagine it. We said, we, know, um, we said earlier that ligaments connect a bone to a bone. The, the articular capsule, you can think of it like a big ligament ball. Okay? It's a fibrous connective tissue that connects one bone to the other, but encapsulates the entire articulation so it's all closed in, which creates a joint cavity. And lining the inside of that cavity, okay, we're going to have a synovial membrane. So it's a membrane that makes synovial fluid, and that's the joint fluid that lubricates the inside of the joint, and that's what makes it a synovial joint. So of course, there's going to be other structures as well. These are living tissues, so they need blood vessels, they need ligaments for support, they need nerves for innervation, and a bunch of other things. But that's the basic gist of a synovial joint, which is drawn out here. Again, this is not a particular joint necessarily. It's just two bones that meet in a synovial joint. So you have articular cartilage, caps the ends. The whole thing is wrapped up in an articular capsule, a ligamentous capsule. And the inside is lined in this purple synovial membrane, which makes synovial fluid. Okay. All right, so um, that articular cartilage is going to be particularly important. Uh, remember that the, it's, it's hyaline cartilage. It gives, us, it gives the end of the joints a little bit of squishiness, not a terrible amount, but just a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, give to it. Uh, they're slippery. They're kind of described kind of like Teflon-y kind of um, surfaces. So it allows nice free motion as long as they're, in, they're, um, you know, they're intact uh, and, uh, and healthy. Um, the th I guess the, the important uh, thing to remember about hyaline cartilage is, we mentioned a couple of units ago, but uh, they are avascular, which means they do not have a blood supply. So how does articular, is, it, sorry, is articular cartilage living tissue? Yes, it is. It does need nutrients, but it doesn't have a blood supply. So how does it get its nutrition? 
it gets it from the synovial fluid. It, 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 get, it gets it from synovial fluid, so uh, essentially through diffusion, which means that in order for joints to stay healthy, what do they have to do? They've got to move, exactly. And joints that don't move will start to break down a lot more quickly than joints that don't. And when I say break down, what I really mean is the articular cartilage will start to degrade. Okay. Uh, again, it's going to be wrapped up creating a joint cavity. Uh, the membrane inside the capsule is the synovial membrane, which makes synovial fluid. It's basically like uh, a lubricant for joints. Forwards. Ligaments, <clears throat> we know what they do, right? They're dense, regular connective tissue. Usually, um, by definition, a ligament is going to be uh, in one particular direction, so it's going to be kind of a linear orientation. It's going to it's going to follow a particular line uh, where it's supposed to be and where it gives some support on one particular aspect of the joints, connecting bone to bone. And now there's some interesting kind of variations on that. Um, there are definitely ligaments called extrinsic ligaments that follow that exact description. Um, here, if we looked at the, the knee joint here, okay, on the outside of the knee joint, we're going to get to the knee joint later. Okay. This is a ligament here called the fibular collateral or lateral collateral ligament. Okay. This is an extrinsic ligament. It sits outside of the capsule and is a discrete ligament that holds that gives support to that outside of the knee. One you've probably heard of is on the inside, the medial collateral ligament, or MCL. Okay. It's a commonly injured ligament in the knee. How do you injure an MCL? do this. Okay? See how that stresses that ligament? We'll talk about this a little more in a bit. The interesting part is, in most uh, anatomical models, like this one, it shows that that MCL is an extrinsic ligament. It is not. Okay? In the real world, if you were to dissect out a knee, right, open up a knee, this is not something that I can grab on with forceps and, and pull on. It's actually part of the capsule, so it's considered intrinsic. It's really just a very thick region of that articular capsule. So that's what I mean by an intrinsic ligament. It's the capsule itself. It's just very, very thick and, and reinforced in that particular direction. Okay. Uh, th that kind of random, but there was a... Probably a couple of years ago now, there was uh, I, something came across. Um, something brought a, uh, somebody brought up an article, and it was uh, a new a new ligament had been discovered in the knee. So somebody was you know dissecting the knee and just discovered this new ligament. Well, not really, right? What they did was they had taken the knee capsule, and you basically dissected out a band of fibers that are part of the capsule that are very common in most bodies and they gave it a name. It's not like, oh, well, we magically missed this ligament and all the people that have studied anatomy for all the years never found it before, but somebody found it now. That's not really how this stuff works. Um, so it doesn't matter. Kind of just annoyed me. Uh, what else? Uh, we're of course going to have uh, blood vessels and nerves. Again, this is all living tissue. It needs lots of blood supply. Uh, there are lots and lots of nerves. We'll talk about the kinds of things they do in the nervous system. You're going to get information relating to things like pain uh, and position, proprioception, where your joints are in space. Your brain gets a lot of feedback 
and information that it uses for things like movement and balance based on the feedback it gets from the joints. And we know what tendons are, right? Tendons are another form of dense regular connective tissue that run in particular directions. Uh, these ones don't attach bone to bone, though. They attach muscle to bone. Um, the uh, tendons are not like ligaments and capsule. They're not part of the joint itself. They are outside the joint where the muscles attach on the bones and are going to pull and move those joints. Okay. Um, bursa. Uh, bursa are essentially um, little, uh, um, little sacs filled with fluid. Uh, you're going to find bursa in a lot of different places. Uh, here, for example, is a, an image of the knee. Um, this isn't even all the bursa in the knee, but the, the, this is a, what kind of, well, it says it on there, sagittal section. This is a sagittal view of the knee. Okay. Um, the blue things are the bursa. All right. Now, what they are is fluid-filled sacs that uh, essentially give some cushioning to uh, places around joints where there's going to be pressure. Okay? So you'll find them kind of often around and between and underneath tendons. Uh, so here's a good example. You see infrapatellar bursa. So bursa that are below the patella but um, in front of and behind the patellar ligament. Uh, common ones that get uh, inflamed. And when, when a bursa gets inflamed, it's called a bursitis. Okay? That part of it, again, is a discussion for another day. But uh, for now, the, the original purpose of bursa is to give some cushioning uh, and reduce friction in and around joints. But they exist outside of the joint capsule. Okay? Now, here's some important stuff. Okay? Let's talk about what joints do, right? what the movement that we're trying to, to, to accomplish with them is. So um, <laughs> we're talking about two bones moving relative to one another, and we're going to give the movements names based on what that motion looks like. So the terms we're going to learn are flexion and extension, lateral flexion, abduction, adduction, and circumduction, and a couple other uh, ones thrown in there as well. So let's talk about these. Okay? Um, from now on, when we talk about movement of joints and movement of the body, we're, we're going to discuss them in terms of these anatomical references and, and, and movements. So flexion. Okay? Flexion is typically going to be movement in the anterior and posterior plane. Now remember that this is all back, relating back to anatomical position. Right? This is always our reference point. So when I say anterior posterior, it doesn't really matter if the arm's up here or down here. You go back to anatomical position for our reference point. So the anterior posterior plane is where most flexion and extension are going to happen. And the best way I can describe flexion is you're taking two bones that articulate, and you are from this position, you are closing the angle between them. Okay? You're bringing them closer together. Okay, so for the most part, flexion is going to be this kind of movement. So if I flex my fingers, it's going to be this. Okay, if I flex my wrists, okay, forward. Flex my elbows. Okay, flex your shoulders. Good, that's shoulder flexion. Good. You can flex your spine. Okay, so this. And this and this is all spine flexion. Okay? Where it starts, uh, so hips, this is 
hip flexion. Okay? Now where it gets a little bit trickier is in the knee because it, it goes the other way. Okay? It goes backwards. So it goes posterior, but it's still closing the angle of that joint. So knee flexion is, is this direction. Okay? There's special names for the ankle, so we'll leave that alone. The toes, toe flexion, is like the fingers. It's curling. Okay? Extension is the opposites. So let's do the opposite. I will extend my fingers. I'll extend my wrists. I'll extend the elbows. I'll extend my shoulders. I'll extend my spine. I'll extend my hips. I will extend my knee. Okay, remember it's the opposite direction. Make sense? Miss anything? Okay. Lateral flexion. Lateral flexion is exactly what it sounds like. It's mostly relating to the trunk, the spine. So left lateral flexion right lateral flexion. And you can distinguish, is it lumbar, is it thoracic, is it cervical? Um, but side to side of the trunk is all lateral flexion. That's an easy one. Okay? Very good. Abduction, adduction. Okay? People get tripped up on this one. So, um, back to anatomical position. If we're moving the uh, a body part, like a shoulder joint, for example, away from the midline, away from the midsagittal line, if you're, if you're taking something away, if you're taking somebody, you are abducting them, right? If you take the limb away from the, from the midline, it's abduction. If I take a limb and bring it back to the midline, I'm adding that limb back to my body, I'm adducting, A-D. So abduct, adduct. Adding to the body, exactly. Okay, I'm abducting it away, I'm adding it to. Okay, hip, hip, abduction, hip, adduction. All right, this does get a touch trickier in the hand, okay? Because in the hand, you actually draw a new midline. So instead of down the middle of the body, you draw a midline down the middle of the hand, which is down the center of the third finger. Okay, so I am abducting my fingers. I am adducting my fingers. A, B, taking away. A, D, adding two. Okay, if you can do it with the toes, same thing. The foot, the midline is the second toe, not the third. But that's a less common, not worry about that too much. Okay. I'll say, well, what are, well there's, there's got to be some variations on this, right? If you add a few things together, we don't just move in planes, of course. So we can circumduct. So circumduction is going to be in your joints that allow it, uh, and it's basically kind of like a cone-type motion. So I'm circumducting my shoulder joints. I'm circumducting my hip joints. Anything else? Uh, don't worry about hyperextension. Just flash and extension. Yep, sure, you can do that with the neck. I can circumduct with finger, wrists. Right, so there's some joints that are amenable to circumduction. Some joints are planar, you can't do it. <coughs> Rotation. Okay, 
So when you are uh, moving a joint that rotates along a particular longitudinal axis, then we call it rotation. So a good example here would be uh, shoulders and hips again. So this, there's a couple names for this. This is, uh, I'm looking at the shoulder, okay? I'm gonna hold my arm in nine, my elbow at 90 degrees to make it obvious. Lateral rotation, also known as external rotation, towards the other side. Meteor rotation, also called internal rotation. Lateral or external rotation, medial or internal rotation. Same thing with a hip, okay? Lateral or external rotation, medial or internal rotation. It's on the long axis of that joint. Okay? Pronation, supination, okay? We talked about that before. Best example of that is in the uh, is in the forearms. Okay, remember that this. Where is this movement coming from? Ask you a hard question. Okay, so what what general region is this motion coming from? Elbow. Wrists or elbows? Elbow. elbow. Okay. Now the harder question. Exactly what joint is this happening at? It's happening at the place where the circular head of the radius meets this little notch in the ulna, okay? So this is a radial ulnar joint. Now, before you write that down, the radius and the ulna actually meet twice because they have a joint here, and they also meet at the wrist. So we call this one at the wrist the distal radial ulnar joint. It doesn't do a heck of a lot. Well, some. This here is the proximal radial ulnar joints. So the bulk of pronation, supination, occurs at the proximal radial ulnar joint. Now, there's anybody? Okay. Most people will think that's happening at the wrist. Okay. It's not. Um, sometimes, I'll give you a heads up, sometimes people will also call this motion of the ankle pronation. As you, uh, if I take the, the inside of my instep and turn it down towards the floor, or people talk about it in the context of your feet pronate, so they do this, okay? That's sometimes called pronation, and supination is sometimes called this, okay? Now, we will say, we'll call it inversion Sorry, inversion and eversion. Okay? But you will hear that terminology. Okay, but in our class, pronation supination is just for elbow. What did you call it? It was radial ulnar joint. Radio ulnar joint. Yeah. Okay? There are some other ones that don't really fit into those categories. Depression, elevation. A couple examples of that. Uh, the mandible, right? So you depress the mandible, it down, you elevate the mandible. Close it up. You can also depress and elevate the scapula, the shoulder blades. So I depress my scapula, I elevate my scapula. A planar movement, down and up. Uh, that's that right there. Okay. Uh, uh, ankle has some special movements. Okay. Um, when we talk about the ankle, we're talking about what's called the, um, the mortise joint, which is, or the talocrural joint, which is tibia, sits on top of the talus, 
Good, okay? So this motion that I'm about to describe is happening at the tibia on the talus. So it's, sorry, I forgot I broke that off. <laughs> So we have dorsiflexion, bringing the top of the foot up towards the anterior part of the shin. And we have plantar flexion, right? Pointing the foot down, okay? So if I go up on my tippy toes, what movement is happening at the ankle joint? Plantar flexion, good, very good. If I walk on my heels, I'm pulling my feet up into dorsiflexion. Okay, this is what I was talking about. Inversion, eversion. Okay, if I have this leg, right, this is a left, uh, left foot. Inversion is the inside of the foot here, the medial aspect of the foot is gonna be turned in. Okay, inversion, eversion. So, Inversion, eversion. Everybody see that? Inversion, eversion. Inversion, by the way, is by far the most common way to sprain an ankle. Right? You, when you roll an ankle, you, you invert it, and you're going to injure the uh, ligaments on the outside of the ankle. All right. These are a couple weird ones. Protraction and retraction, again, ones that apply more or less to the jaw and the scapula. So protraction, I don't even know if I can do it. Retraction, okay, sure that looks great. Uh, no pictures, please. Uh, we can also do it at the scapula again, right? The scapula moving on the rib cage, just like we could elevate and depress. We can protract and retract. Protract, and that's not oh, that's not shoulder motion, right? That's scapular motion. If you look right here, you might be able to see it moving. Protract, retract. Very good. Yeah, this is kind of a unique-ish one too. Opposition and reposition. So opposition, you're opposing your finger and thumb. So you take your thumb and you oppose it with a finger, and then you reposition it. Opposition, and we're together. Reposition, back where it should be. Okay. There are other, a lot of other tricky little ones in the hand too, which we're leaving off the table here. <coughs> okay. Are there any questions on joint movement? I know I blew through a whole bunch all at once. You definitely need to know them. Okay. Quick quiz. What is this? Abduction, right, abduction to the sides. Okay, what is this? Abduction. abduction. What is this? Flexion. Good. What is this? Flexion. What is that? Extension. Finger extension. Okay, and when you're describing movement, joint movement, okay, joint movement. So finger extension, wrist extension, elbow 
Toes flexion is this way. Okay. Uh, what else? Uh, what else? Okay. So let's talk about some specific joints. It's been a long day. All right. Uh, we've picked a couple joints. There's a couple joints that um, uh, basically in the, the outline for this class you have to learn some specific stuff about. So. Let's go back to the glenohumeral joint, okay? So the ball and socket joint of the shoulder. As you said, uh, highly mobile. We gain lots of mobility by sacrificing stability, which means that it's very useful, right? So we can reach and do a lot of stuff with it, but it is the most frequently uh, dislocated uh, joint in the body. Now, because of that, I mean, you typically, when I describe this joint, it's kind of like a golf ball on a tee, okay? So you have the big head of the humerus, it's the ball, sitting on the small tee, which is the glenoid fossa of the, what bone is the glenoid fossa part of? The scapula, right? So we call it glenohumeral, but it's really, it's the shoulder articulating with the glenoid fossa of the scapula, okay? Now, uh, because it is so mobile and relatively unstable, we have a bunch of supporting structures that help make sure that it doesn't fall out. So we have things like the labrum. So you, you find the labrums in a, a few parts of the body, um, mostly the ball and socket joints. So you have a labrum in your shoulder and a labrum in your hip. So the glenoid labrum is basically this fibrocartilage like a suction cup which comes, encircles the joints and kind of grabs onto the head of the humerus. And it gives us a little extra stability. So if you hear somebody say they tore a labrum in their shoulder, a common throwing injury, for example, maybe baseball players, uh, then that's what they're referring to. <clears throat> okay, there are lots of bursa in and around those, the joints. What did we say bursa, what are they? What are they? The fluid-filled sac, exactly, and so they help us reduce uh, friction uh, around joints. But of course, the irony is that they can themselves become uh, pinched or rubbed or irritated and cause pain themselves. We call that a bursitis. <clears throat> okay, there will be lots of supporting tendons and ligaments in the area. Um, I'm not making you responsible for any specific ligaments, so do not worry about that. What we do need to talk about are the muscles that hold it in place, called the rotator cuff, okay? So for now, okay, um, you just need to know that the collective rotator cuff is four muscles that surround this glenohumeral joint and collectively keep the ball in the socket, okay? We're gonna learn the specifics of the rotator cuff muscles in the muscle unit, okay, in the gross anatomy section, um, but for now, they are collectively holding the ball in the socket, okay? We can start to learn their names, the subscapularis, 
the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, and the teres minor. And I know that that's probably not going to stick because we're not really learning the pictures yet. But you're going to hear those names again later when we talk about muscular anatomy. So we'll leave it for them. Okay? They each have their own job. They each kind of pull in a particular direction. But collectively, they all work together to hold, to give stability to the shoulder. Okay? Very commonly injured muscles. Again, makes sense. Highly mobile joints. A lot of overuse injuries. Um, a lot of tears, a lot of tendon pain, that kind of stuff. All right. Uh, so here you can see some of the uh, you can see some of the structures of the shoulder. Again, this here is the glenohumeral joints in there, and you can see some of the uh, overlying ligaments uh, that are holding it in place. Uh, this right here. Excuse me. See how shallow this glenohumeral joint is, or the glenoid fossa is. You see how deep this looks. Right? What makes up that difference? That fibrocartilage starts with an L. Labrum. Okay? The reason this looks deep is because all this stuff here where I'm tracing the mouse, that's all labrum. Okay? All right. Nothing else specific from this picture at this time. Okay? Um... Don't worry about anything specific out of this. It's just too much all at once. We'll, uh, again, we'll learn more about the rotator cuff in the muscle unit. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about a couple of uh, injuries here. I mentioned that the shoulder uh, is the most commonly dislocated joint in the body. Now, when you say the shoulder joint has been dislocated, what you're talking about is this ball and socket glenohumeral joint. Okay. Um, does anybody know the positions in which it's most vulnerable for dislocation? Okay. This, so full external rotation, okay, or this. So basically, what's what's this motion? Careful. This is shoulder flexion. So full shoulder flexion. A good way to dislocate a shoulder is. Say I fall on that outstretched arm, and maybe somebody or something comes and lands on the top of my arm that way. Okay? <laughs> What's that? That could happen. Um, so, in either case, uh, 95 plus percent of shoulder dislocations are what are called anterior dislocations. So, that means that the ball of the shoulder dislocates anteriorly. It moves this way. Okay? And in some cases it will dislocate and then relocate. In some cases it will dislocate and stay dislocated and it will sit right there. It will sit in the front of the chest. And the shoulder will look like hollow. It'll look what's called sulcus sign. It looks like there's nothing there, which is accurate because the head of the humerus which makes the round part of the shoulder is not there. It's sitting in the chest. Okay? <coughs> Make sure you recognize that. <coughs> I've run into some situations where medical professionals did not recognize that, and it was not great. <laughs> I'll tell you a story later when we have more time. Um, what else? Oh, uh, don't confuse a dislocation <coughs> excuse me, with a separation. Okay? A shoulder separation refers to an entirely different joint. 
okay? It refers to the AC joint, okay? So remember that AC joint is right here. If you touch the top of your shoulder, the bony part up here, it's kind of a little knobby bony, that's your AC joint, okay? That's right here, where the acromion of the scapula meets with the clavicle, AC. Okay, so AC joint separations can happen a whole bunch, bunch of different ways. In sports, it's often uh, direct contact to the shoulder from the side, so uh, body check or into the, onto the uh, ground or into the board or something like that, basically jamming that AC joint inward this way. It's considered a sprain because it's a joint injury, um, but don't confuse the terms separation and dislocation because they are totally different joints. Okay. Patients will confuse this all the time, so sometimes you need to ask them a little bit more about which it actually was. <coughs> okay, elbow. <coughs> Excuse me. The elbow joint is, of course, um, it's what's called a compound hinge joint. So it's mostly a hinge joint. So it works mostly in which movements? This is elbow flexion, elbow extension. Good. But of course, as we know, within this joint, we also have the proximal radial ulnar joint, which gives us the element of pronation and supination. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, you're not responsible for trochlear notch. You're not responsible for capitulum. I just need you to know the movements involved there. Okay, there are uh, the elbow joint is a uh, <coughs> of. I mean, if you're picking, you're comparing joints. The elbow is a pretty stable joint. Um, it can happen, I've seen it happen, but it's pretty unlikely to dislocate an elbow, okay? Uh, maybe sometime when we have more time, we'll look at some injury videos. But um, the, the elbow, because it's, it's got this real uh, bony track to it, okay? It's mostly a, a hinge joint. It's got this real good bony fit, and it's got really thick supporting ligaments it's not very typical that you would dislocate an elbow. You can damage the ligaments that support the elbow, okay? Um, but you have to put usually a lot of stress uh, on them uh, either um, all at once, so very, very stressful movement, uh, or uh, repetitive stress. Um, so this can happen, for example, in uh, um, baseball players, pitchers. Um, so on the sides, We'll hear this term coming up a couple times, so let's get into it now. A collateral ligament. I briefly said earlier in the knee you have these collateral ligaments. So collateral means they run down the outside of the joints. Okay? So what they're typically uh, meant for is, is preventing side-to-side -side motion, like this. Okay? <coughs> so you're going to have a radial collateral ligament on the radial side and an ulnar collateral ligament on the ulnar side. Okay? So I'll give you the really quick version. Somebody who is, a, is a, usually a pitcher in baseball. Um, if you look at a pitcher uh, in slow-mo, there is an enormous amount of shoulder external rotation. And then right at, uh, before the release, there's a huge amount of this movement in the elbow. So what it's doing is stressing that ulnar collateral ligament, the ligament that runs along the inside. And so it is somewhat typical for baseball players to have to get a surgery to repair that on their collateral ligament. Have you ever heard of the term Tommy John surgery? That's what that is. Okay. <clears throat> All right, next is the hip. 
so again, as we saw earlier today, uh, the hip, true hip joints is the femoroacetabular joints, the femur articulating with the acetabulum. Okay, again, ball and socket joints, more stable than the shoulder joints, which means we sacrifice some mobility for the sake of stability. We do uh, also deepen and stabilize that, uh, that joint the same way we do in the shoulder joints with a fibrocartilage labrum. And as in the shoulder joints, you can tear a labrum, you can most certainly tear a labrum in the hip joints as well. Okay, hip joint, again, being a ball and socket joint, lots and lots of different planes. Uh, what is this motion? Hip flexion, hip extension, hip abduction, hip adduction, hip circumduction, hip. No, no, no. long axis of the joint, so it's a rotation. That is, there's two names. Lateral or external rotation. Okay? This is medial or internal rotation. Okay. We tired yet? <laughs> Sorry? All right. Uh, what else? Nope, let's not worry about this slide too much. Oh, uh, just one, this is not a new test, one quick little interesting thing. Uh, if you open up a hip, right, you can see this ligament. Uh, it's called the round ligament or the ligament of the head of the femur. Uh, it attaches the head of the femur uh, into the inside of the hip joint. Uh, it's a ligament. That's not really one you want to rely on for stability. What's actually important about that ligament is inside it runs an important artery that supplies the head of the femur. Uh, so if you dislocate the, the uh, hip joint, for example, you can rupture that, uh, that artery uh, and cause um, a disruption of blood flow to the head of the femur. Um, <clears throat> again, very, very solid ball and socket joints. It's very challenging to dislocate a hip in most cases. It can <coughs> be done. Um, car accidents, right? So, uh, sitting, right, and knees hit the dashboards and it jams the hip backwards, you can get a posterior dislocation of the hip. All right, again, like a joint, it's gonna have all, it's gonna have a capsule, ligaments, and lots of muscles that cross it to support it. <coughs> and we're not gonna learn any specific ligaments. Easy peasy. Uh, where are we? All right, um, let's, uh, <laughs> this is really not fair to be trying to teach the knee joint from scratch at the end of this class right now. So I will skip the knee joints, we'll do the ankle, I'll do the knee joint when you're fresh next week, uh, and then we'll, we'll move on from this, okay? Because it's, it's probably the most complicated joint that we have to learn about, so it's not fair. Uh, let's talk about the ankle and then uh, what happens when you get old and then we'll call it a day. So the ankle joint, right, <coughs> the talocrural joint, what it's referring to is talo, talus, crural refers to the tibia. So it's the tibiotalar joint, okay? Remember our two big motions here are this, careful, 
Dorsiflexion? Plantar flexion. Dorsiflexion, plantar flexion. Good. Okay, Mo the vast majority of that articulation is happening, uh, the weight-bearing portion is happening of the, uh, at the tibia on the talus, although the, the, um, the fib fibula is kind of hanging out here as well. Uh, quick little review, see what we remember. The bony parts on the inside of the ankle, that is called the medial, the inside. Malleolus. The bony part of the outside is the lateral malleolus. Okay. So again, the big the big movements here are dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, but of course we can also do um, inversion and eversion. Uh, <coughs> there is <coughs> one thing I want to point out here uh, because it's super 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 common. Um, this right here. All right. So this is lateral view of the outside of the ankle. Okay, you can see some ligaments there. <coughs> now they call this thing collectively the lateral ligament because it's a ligament and it's on the lateral side. Now there are actually special names for each one of these things, uh, but I'm only going to make you learn one. Okay, this one right here. Okay, see where the mouse is? Okay, this is named, a lot of ligaments are named for exactly where they are, so they're not crazy names, they're just, they're, they're, named, for, they're named for where they reside. This is the anterior talofibular ligament. Okay, anterior, it's in the front. Talo, from the talus, fibular to the fibula ligament. ATFL, anterior talofibular ligaments. Yeah. I have a question. In the diagram, it's on the top. Is that, is, that's is different. All, that's different. That's anterior tibiofibular. Oh. I know, because that's between the tibia and the fibula. This is between the talus and the fibula. I know. So um, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because that is far and away the most commonly uh, injured ligament when you sprain an ankle. Okay. And if you look at the anatomy of what's involved, it will make a lot of sense. Okay? <coughs> it runs anteriorly from the talus to the fibula, as the name suggests. <coughs> the most typical mechanism for uh, ankle sprain. Okay? A sprain means an injury of a ligament. Strain means injury of a tendon or a muscle. Is <coughs> inversion combined with plantar flexion. Right? If you just don't put weight on it, but at your, at your seat, do what I'm doing. So roll your foot in and kind of point the toes down. You're going to feel stress towards the front outside portion of your ankle. So imagine <laughs> slipping off a curve and doing that really forcefully, coming down on it. Right? So as the foot does this and that, okay, it's stressing that exact location where that anterior uh, anterior talofibular ligament runs. And that is exactly why it is by far the most commonly uh, um, sprained ankle and the lig uh, ligament in the ankle. Excuse me. Can you sprain the medial side of your ankle? You can. There's a ligament there. It's called the deltoid ligament. But it's pretty tough. Like, you can do it. But quite frankly, the force that it takes to do that 
you're likely to break a bone instead. All right. So um, just remember that one anterior talofibular ligament. That's part of this lateral ligament there. Okay, real brief talk. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Okay, what happens when you get old? Well, things don't quite move as well as they, as they used to. Uh, things don't heal as quickly as they used to. Blood supply kind of uh, uh, starts to get impaired a little bit. We move less, and eventually joint surfaces start uh, breaking down. All right? uh, so we, we call inflammation of a joint arthritis. Right? Arth means joint. Itis is inflammation. So your typical run-of-the-mill wear and tear degeneration of joints is what's called osteoarthritis. Don't confuse that with rheumatoid arthritis or gout uh, or any number of other inflammatory arthritis. If you're talking about your run-of-the-mill wear and tear, that is osteoarthritis. So, um, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Please trust me on this one. Okay, this is my bread and butter. I see it all day long. It keeps me very busy. <laughs> so, what is the single best thing you can do to prevent arthritis? Move. Move what? Everything. Move your joints, okay? Move your joints. We have unfortunately become a society of sedentary people, right? We like to be sedentary all day long and then go home, drive home, right? Be sedentary. And then on the weekends, haul ass and play some sports for like an hour or two, right? This is not a good recipe for healthy joints, okay? It is conceptually not that difficult to maintain a good amount of joint health as, time, uh, you, know, as you get older. Um, it does take some commitment. It, it might mean a morning routine. It might mean some, something regular. Um, if you enjoy something like uh, a movement class, a yoga, or whatever, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It doesn't have to be terribly strenuous or terribly forceful. But uh, the simplistic way I can, I, can, I can explain it is just get those joints moving. Okay? Find a way to get it done. Uh, because once you start heading into arthritis, it makes it a lot more difficult to manage. Okay? And this, this, this one thing right here is one of the single biggest burdens on our healthcare system, dollar-wise. Okay? Uh, it stacks up against heart disease and cancer and all that other stuff, all the big stuff. Okay? Anyway. Um, there are some other, uh, other types on here. Um, by no means is this meant to be an in-depth uh, uh, view into each of them. Just recognize there are other types of arthritis. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disorder where your own body's immune system attacks your joints. It attacks the synovial membranes on the inside of joints and causes significant inflammation, pain, and deformity. That is not run-of-the-mill wear and tear. Okay, that's autoimmune. Uh, and then gout, right? Gouty arthritis. Gout is where you accumulate a, a waste product that our kidneys normally excrete called uric acid. And you accumulate uh, more than you should in your blood, and then it precipitates, which means it's in solution in your blood, and then it comes out of solution and turns into a solid. And when you look at uh, uric acid crystals, that precipitate come out of solution, make solid inside joints. They look like little knives, right? Little needles or crystals. So you might imagine what that might feel like if they all of a sudden form inside your joints. This is the kind of thing where joints can be so painful that 
Uh, and, and the most typical joint that gets affected first is the joint of the big toe right here. Okay, so one last little bother you one more time with anatomy stuff. Okay, when we're naming joints, we name the number and then we name the bones that are articulated. So, big toe is which number? One. one. So this big joint right here, okay, this big knobby one is the first. Which bones are, are joining in this joint? What are the long bones in the foot? Metatarsal phalangeal. So this is the first metatarsal phalangeal joint, or first MTP. Okay? So that's the, the, the most typical joint that gets affected first in a lot of cases of gout. Um, there's specific names for that. It's all stuff for patho later. Uh, this is the kind of thing that it, when it's inflamed and, and angry, it is so painful that the, the weight of a sheet on your toe can be agonizing. You can't even have anything touch it. You can't bear weight. You can't do anything. So it's an entirely different type of, of arthritis. All right. I know that I've thoroughly just melted your brains today. I get that. I know it's a lot. It always is this class. Um, I really highly encourage you to uh, practice with the 3D, the 3D modeling stuff, the visible bodies or whatever else you have access to. If you have questions, please email me. We, have, you know, we can ask me in class next week. We'll do the knee and then we'll move on to muscle stuff after your tests, which is units four to six, right? So none of the skeletal stuff that we've talked about, none of the joint stuff we've talked about is on your test. It's just, what is it? It's micro tissues and skin. All right? What about it? It's due on Monday, yeah. Uh, what, what does it cover? Uh, I think skeletal. I gotta double check. I can double check right now. Hang on, let me stop recording this.